This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbara, and the thousands of people past and present who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Thank you, Chris Anthony, for that lovely opening. Today is a very, very special podcast. This is a person that many of us find iconic on television. I have the full DVD set of Family Affair. Watch it over and over again. Love that swirly thing with the harpsichord at the beginning. It's a great show that just doesn't ever wear at its welcome. But that's not all my guest today has done. A lot of things. Besides actor in many, many things, Ten Commandments, all kinds of great movies, television shows. She is an author, a producer, a philanthropist a speaker, and an all-around inspiration, because this is a person who started as a child actor and just broke new ground, went out and did stuff and continues to do stuff. And before I go on too much, I want to introduce to all of you Ms. Kathy Garver. Gosh, Greg, if you could see me, you would see my face just uh, blushing with all the economists. <laughs> <laughs> I know people probably already know this stuff, but for those who might want to refresh, and who doesn't want to refresh? It's like watching another family affair again. How can you not? So just tell us about your life and especially what you're doing now. Well, I started when I was three years old. How long did you say we had for this? (laughs) (laughs) As long as you want. (laughs) But I started singing and dancing with the Medlin Studios in Hollywood. And that is where they discovered Shirley Temple. Mm -hmm. So my lovely mother thought that that would be a good place for me to either be discovered or at least learn how to sing, dance, be in front of a big group. When I was three, I was dancing and singing at the... Shrine Auditorium, which in Hollywood, it's very, very big. And that's yes. where Aida with elephants trampling across the stage. There I am, this little tiny girl doing the waltz clog, you know, to east side, west side. So that's kind of how I got my beginning in entertainment. And then I became a professional, quote unquote, actress, as you alluded to in the Ten Commandments. Actually, before that, I did The Night of the Hunter 
which is oh. really a wonderful film. Oh, scary, scary movie, kids. Ooh. Scary, scary. Were you scared making it, or did you kind of know this is make-believe? The latter. I knew it was make-believe. And the first day I was on set, I knew that because I was actually hired to be Sally Jane Bruce's double because they got this little girl, but she was six years old. She had never acted, and she hadn't even gone to Megalyn Studios to learn Mm. the basic kind of things. But it was kind of what Charles Lawton wanted with this kind of vacant stare. But I was eight, and I had two big brothers that I wrestled with, and I knew how to dance and run and was very athletic. So I became her double and did many scenes that uh, she couldn't do. And so the camera used me going down the river and being in a hayloft and running, etc. So that first day when I went in and I was going to double her is when I am hiding in a basement with my brother, Billy Chapin, who was Lauren Chapin's brother from Father Knows Best. Mm-hmm. And we are hiding from this crazed preacher who my brother knows has killed before, and that preacher wants to get us. So he comes raging down these stairs into the basement, breaking all kinds of bottles, but they were all plastic bottles, Mm -hmm. and uh, getting the spiderwebs out of his way. So I had seen the prop man spray those spiderwebs, and I had seen the prop man show me how the plastic broke. So I knew it Mm -hmm. really wasn't real. So I had a good discernment, I think, between the reality and what we were doing that kind of had stood me in good stead all through my very long life. And you took it for what it was, and I think that was what helped you survive all through show business. You take certain things like your craft seriously, but you don't take all of the uh, accoutrement seriously, if I may exactly. be, if I yes. may be Fraser-like. Yes, well, that was <laughs> well said. I and, I don't think there's anyone listening who isn't familiar with Kathy Garver. This is a person who was in our homes and still so often programs like Family Affair, people become like relatives and friends. And that's one of the things I say about Hanna-Barbera characters is that because they were so accessible, they were on TV all the time, that they were different from other previous characters. One of the things you started out doing was radio. So you're no stranger to doing voice acting. I was a little girl when I was doing radio with Betty Davis on Whispering Streets. She would narrate these series of stories, and then they would be complete stories unto themselves. And I remember so vividly when my mother and I went to go up to uh, CBS Radio near Hollywood and Vine, and oh, we'd get to meet Betty Davis, and we were all so excited, and we all dressed up for radio. And we get there, and we says, oh, and we were a little late and we we're running in. He says, oh, is, is, is Miss Davis here? And she says, oh, well, she doesn't work here. She's in New York. She oh. just does her part in New York. So we were so disappointed and we never did get to meet Betty Davis. But her memory certainly does linger. So I did that show and I did a lot of other shows. The Flowers for Jenny was one of the ones I remember that we were doing, but lots of kids things. And when I grew up and was still doing radio, I played a lot of kids' voices. So I mm-hmm. just took my voice when it was a little girl and I was doing a real little girl. And hopefully I put in some things that 
really made that little girl a little girl. Yeah, and in your career as a voice actor, you worked for a lot of studios. I mean, not just Hanna-Barbera, but for Marvel on Spider-Man, and there's a lot of work. But for Hanna-Barbera, you were on uh, Super Friends and Fonz and the Happy Days Gang, Tom and Jerry Kids, and one of my favorites was the revival, the new Yogi Bear show, which they really made like the original. They worked hard to make it like the original. You were in the first one. Kahuna yes. Yogi. Yeah, I loved that. I loved working with Hanna-Barbera, and I had a personal relationship with them as well because Joe Barbera was on the board of one of my best friends, Jimmy Doolittle, not the aviator, but the manager and the director of the Huntington Hartford Theater and the Greek Theater. Mm-hmm. So there was like a cross-pollination because Joe Barbera was on the board of Huntington Hartford and Jimmy was on the board for Hanna-Barbera. So they were philanthropists and they helped each other out. He was so good. I mean, it's really wonderful because he directed some things. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Barbera did. And I think I told you before we did this interview that they had a new series that they were going to do. Yes. Based on Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz. They made the pilots and Joe directed them all, but they didn't quite, you know, get over the top. But Oh, I, mean, I would have loved to have seen, I'm sure there's somewhere, the Alice was a modern day sort of series like the Lewis Carroll stories. Right. Yes. So was so, it like the Janet Waldo one in 66? Very sort of uh, hip and upbeat? It was upbeat. I don't know how hip it was. And the one that they wanted to do with the Wizard of Oz was kind of in the same vein as all the Swifties and the Jonathan Swift type things. Mm -hmm. But I haven't seen it and I haven't heard it. But that that would be a delight. But I worked for Ruby Spears. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they were doing little animated shorts. So I did... Marvin, Baby of the Year, that was based on a little comic strip. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, one for Dennis the Menace, where I played Dennis the Menace's mother. Alice, yeah. Alice, yeah. So I was, you know, growing up in my voice and making it more loving and mother-like instead of being a little kid and things like that. Was it fun to work in an ensemble with the other actors? I love to work ensemble. I don't like to just put my voice in, you know, by itself. When I moved up to Northern California and they had so many more like video game voiceover type things that Mm -hmm. they were doing. And everything was done just in situ alone. Yeah. (laughs) Like when we did Spider-Man, His Amazing Friends with Dan Gilvezan and Frank Welker, and we would all be together. We'd do a nice table read. And with all the actors, just beforehand, before anybody recorded. And I love to do that to get the feel of it and to get that energy from all the other wonderful actors. And so that was a real blessing to do it that way. I like it that way. Yeah, and that's a hallmark of Hanna-Barbera cartoons because they were television and they had their roots also in their 
early theatricals. There's a lot of reasons why their cartoons worked, even as they went into the 70s and 80s. I think the large part it was the audio, because you had the best actors all working together, and there is that energy level, that electricity. I've heard that from many, many people. Yes, and especially when we were doing like Happy Days, and Henry Winkler was actually there, and Ron Howard, and you know, it just gave it that warmth. And as you say, it's the energy through the, the air, the electricity that sparked all the other actors. You also told me, we mentioned Janet Waldo earlier, who was one of the Alice's. You told me a very unusual thing about you and Janet Waldo. Yes. My parents were very kind. And about 20 years ago, they bought plots, funeral plots for us at Hollywood's Forest Lawn. And I thought, oh, well, thank you. Well, actually, just three months ago, I was up at Forest Lawn and saying hello to my parents. And then I was trying to find the plot. And then... I found my plot, and guess where it was? Right next to Janet Waldo. Wow. <laughs> I said, well, this is something, you know, we can be talking in, in our voiceover, and maybe we have some <laughs> electricity left, and we could just have a real good time. I just did a Comic-Con with Katie Lee. Oh, and, yeah. And she's terrific, and I don't know how many times that she told me, she says, you remind me so much of Janet Waldo. <laughs> And I said, we're going to haunt you, Katie. <laughs> oh, Katie is astonishingly good, you know. Yes, she is. And uh, there's so many of these folks. It is a different kind of acting, and yet it is still acting. You do have to add a little to it because it isn't visual, but it still has to be believable. And, and one of the things I want to mention that she did, there is a Twilight Zone audio drama series that Carl Amari created and produced and they took absolutely every episode of the twilight zone except for one because it had folk songs in it that were a legal issue but every other episode from the entire run plus original ones or maybe unfilmed ones that were done and they got uh stacy keach to narrate and major major talents to be in these and you did two of my all-time favorites. The 16-millimeter shrine, which was the Ida Lupino episode. She's like Norma Desmond. She keeps watching her movies. Uh, yes, and then she disappears into the screen, as a good Twilight ending should have, not to be a spoiler, but they've been on many times, and we you know, just love them, and not only the television viewing of them, but Carl did do a fabulous job with the audio, and then just translating the TV scripts into radio scripts that work so well. It's very difficult to write and execute uh, radio drama when there is so much of a visual to describe and you can't write cheesy exposition. You know, look, this is happening. Oh, look over there. That's happening. So when you come to that ending and you're right, it's just as much fun to watch a Twilight Zone when you know the ending because you can't wait. Than when you don't. <laughs> um, now, it was truly a masterpiece, honestly, was they took one of the best episodes ever made, The Invaders with Agnes Moorhead. And that was a renowned episode because it had no dialogue. And you had this woman who lived in a remote rural area who was being tormented by little aliens from outer space. And they were shooting little things at her. And it was a really, really, it was a great episode. And I'm thinking, how in the world are they going to take this thing 
and make it into something that you only hear. And I don't know who came up with the idea, but they said, okay, we have to have a person for her to talk to. So she has a husband, but we also make her non-sighted. And that not only adds to what she must do and what has to be said to her, but also makes it more frightening. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things at the end, it shows that the little aliens in the Twilight Zone were actually American astronauts. And she was this really tall, great big figure. Yeah. And that was the big surprise as well. They're not aliens. They're us. They're the astronauts. And we're on a different planet with these giants. So it was a wonderful story unto itself. I also did one called The Fever, and that was the one in Vegas. And then I did another one, and I can't remember the name of it, but I still have the script here. Because when I go sometimes to radio shows, I'll take this script and I say, well, let's Mm -hmm. do a table reading of this Twilight Zone. That is the one where she's in love and he's the astronaut's going to go off into space and then come back. And she says, I'll wait for you and I won't take this aging pill. And then he came back because I and I now I forget the entire thing, but I think he didn't take it and she did or she took it and he didn't. And anyway, it was like that short story by oh henry she cuts the hair to get and he buys it for christmas and then he buys her a comb and but she had already cut her hair so she could give him a present and he bought her a comb but she didn't have any more hair, hair comb it's irony that was so much the twist yeah folks you can locate these very easily they're available i believe on amazon and a lot of streaming services and what i did was i went to the wikipedia page And I think there's also a Twilight Zone page that lists every episode. And I matched up them season by season. I mean, this took me time, but I love the Twilight Zone and was able to find every one of them and listen to all of them. And I want to tell you, it's an experience when you hear it that is different when you're imagining it. There's so much you can do with a voice, isn't there? Oh, yes. And that reminds me, I did another one of them. I can't remember the entire title, but it's five characters in search of a an exit of an exit. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. And I played the ballerina dancer and they're all these different characters and they're getting along. And it says, how are we ever going to get out of where we are? This is just, you know, they're trying to find an exit. And and then should I give the ending? Sure. You know, all right. <laughs> they were all toys. They yeah. were all toys in a barrel <laughs> trying to get yes. out. But you thought that they were people. And that really works well with the radio, too, because, and you say there are so many things to do with your voice. I actually taught voiceover for 20 years up in Northern California. We are turned voice actors because we're not just reading a script. Mm-mm. We are actually imbibing all the characteristics of that particular character to make them alive to our audience, like animation. Anime means to bring to life. So we want those characters to live and our listeners to have the imagination. Now, they may give that character different types of things, but what they hopefully will get is the spirit of the character by the way that someone talks and you can say, well, she's from the South, I think, but maybe she isn't. I wonder if she's from Alabama or Georgia, all kinds of different things that will go to make the character. And that's what makes it fun, I think, for the voice actor. 
I interviewed June Lockhart once, and I said, the characters you played on TV, by and large, were women of strength and determination. And she said, I did that on purpose, and I'll tell you how I did it. It was the way the line was read. For example, if you're given a very simple line like, what are we going to do? If you go, what are we going to do? That's different than, what are we going to do? You know, you're asserting, you're determined, you're going to make a plan. She says, that's all in the reading. It really is the art of knowing how to use your voice. And actors who are on screen, too, the best ones, have great voices and are distinct. June was kind of instrumental in me getting Family Affair in the fact that I did an episode of Death Valley Days. Mm -hmm. And I played the dancer Isadora Duncan. And she played a librarian, very forthright. And she was very strong. This episode was called The Locket. And that was my first time that I had worked with June. Well, when I was auditioning for Family Affair, I was a little bit older than the character that they wanted. They wanted a 15-year-old. Mm -hmm. So they wanted someone that was 18. And I was already at UCLA and studying there. But in this episode that they wanted to see film on me, so they saw my wonderful agent, Hazel McMillan, sent over this episode of Death Valley Days. And in it, I was 18 playing a 12-year-old. So in reality, I was 20 <laughs> playing mm -hmm. a 15-year-old. I didn't tell them that. I only told them that I was over 18. But they said, oh, well, if an 18 can play this 12-year-old, I know she's going to be believable as a 15-year-old. Mm -hmm. That's how that came down. It was also cool because Family Fair wasn't an edgy, trendy show. That's why it's sort of a classic. It was a warm family, low-key kind of show, but it was still pretty groovy, especially because you got to wear the groovy 60s clothes. Yes, and that was hard, getting the producers to let me do that because it was Don Federson's dictum, and actually it worked very well because he did want to keep it pretty classic. From costumes to decor, from locations to settings, the building that was used for the B-roll for the big apartment building in New York with the penthouse is still there. Hmm. And if you look at the decor, I mean, that could be today, though it was kind of mid-century, the 50s look, and we didn't shoot it until the 60s. It was that kind of modernism that is relevant today, the costumes, I did get them to get me a couple little um, shorter than just the knee length because everybody was wearing miniskirts. Goodness knows, I didn't wear a miniskirt ever. Oh, my gosh. Did well, this wasn't Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were next door. <laughs> um, but I did get a little higher. And the stories... We're so classic. Yeah. And so it's not only the emotionality that touches and the relatability, but it's also the structure mm -hmm. of the half hour of the story. Ed Hartman, who was a wonderful producer and writer, and he was the president of the Writers Guild, explained it very simply that, okay, this is like climbing a tree. You start out at the bottom, you climb up the tree, you look up at the top, you see what's going on, and you slide down. Mm-hmm. So that's starting with the problem, solving the problem, the climax, and then the ending of it. So that classic structure is extant, hopefully, today. And that's how a classic story or any kind of story is going to be, because it's life. Yeah. 
You know, the other thing I enjoyed about, you know, I came from the Northeast. My mother was from New York City. There's an image of New York as just being uh, not nice. Everybody's rude and everybody's upset. But on Family Affair, you got a New York City where there were kind people and there are kind people living there. You know, you need to see that on TV, too. Absolutely. I remember one time I was in a taxi and I got out and I got to my destination. I said, oh, my gosh. I said, I left my purse in that taxi. I said, I can't I can't believe it. And said, all my money and this and that. And I didn't know what to do. And about three hours afterwards, I got a call from Nickelodeon. I said, oh, Nickelodeon? They said, we found your wallet in the taxi. And I just wanted to tell you that it's safe. And we have it here at Nickelodeon. And we will hold it for you if you'd like to pick it up. And, you know, now there's an act of kindness. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, yes. And there are a lot of people that I have met in New York. I mean, people have good and bad and people always rushing around doing their own thing. But when there is something that needs a community or whatever pulling together, and New Yorkers are right there with with other people. Another thing that I've always wanted to ask you, because I think just like everything else, you only hear in news and uh, tabloids and stuff about the problems. But by and large, I think there were a lot of young people who came out of early celebrity, early acting that survived. There are several, uh, probably more than we know. What do you think was the contributing factors to you going from that transition? Because you almost always worked in some way. Well, I think personally for me was that my family moved to San Bernardino from L.A. when I was in the ninth grade. And so it gave me a whole different look at things. San Bernardino is like, even though maybe an hour and a half away from L.A., totally different. It's a small town. It isn't Hollywood with the lights and the this and the that. And it gave me a chance to be a cheerleader in in high school and date and go through all the teen drama that one goes through. And I was still going on interviews, but not so much. So when I started to UCLA and I was working there doing like a rifleman here and a rifleman there, and I had gone through kind of my awkward teenage years. That's one. Mm -hmm. And that's just a personal thing for most everybody that are child actors. And I wrote, I've written five books, but one of them was ex-child stars. Where are they now? Yes. That I'm an expert in, in transition, but I do have a minor in psychology from UCLA and Paul Peterson that started a minor consideration. Yes. Helped so many child stars, ex-child stars. So one, I'm never taking drugs. I'm very fortunate. Thank you, God, to have enough vivid imagination and super sensitivity. I don't need to see things brighter <laughs> in any way whatsoever. I smoked marijuana one time with Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart. I was just listening to Mickey Dolenz. He was on mm-hmm. our local program today, and he's still out there, and he's even a couple years older than me and singing. Yeah. And he gave... Uh, homage to Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, who were wonderful, wonderful music writers. But I remember they gave me like a couple puffs of this marijuana cigarette. Well, I passed right out and I just can't take drugs. My system is too sensitive. Again, thank you. God. (laughs) It's really nice to find out that Sissy was 
Sissy? Uh, in my philosophy of acting, you have to be very much of who you are. You make a character, and it's the same for voice acting or any other kind of acting, that if you're excited, I mean, it's your heart that's beating fast. It's not this lady named Marianne or or Gloria or something. It's Kathy's heart is the mm-hmm. one that's doing it. All of your innards and your emotions, they come from your, your intellect, your brain, your spirit. And you can change a lot of that, but there are some things that you can't change. And I think that inspiration comes from that particular light that God has given you or the universe has given you or Buddha or whomever, higher thing that lives in you. And you want to let that light shine. Personally, I do. Whether I'm doing an interview with you or I am making dinner for my family or I am getting a new role that I'm doing and getting that character. So that's just my own personal belief. So there was a lot of me in Sissy. And it was like in an amalgam. I, I wasn't quite as sweet as Sissy. And I don't know if Sissy drank or not, but she was underage and I was not. And so I could have wine and go to the discos of the 60s. Was family affair in some, uh, I guess because you lived in San Bernardino, maybe you didn't see it as much, but it was family affair because it was a, to quote Edie McClurg on WKRP, a fine, wholesome show. <laughs> was there ever any kind of remarks from the more countercultural people you ran into about it because it was, it was the traditional family show where things were changing? Never, because at that time, the society, the culture, our states were much more uh, convivial with each other and everybody got along much better. And we were in the 60s and that was all love. That wasn't hate for a different group because they weren't like you. They were loving everybody and everybody was loving everybody. You know, so no, there there wasn't. Now, some people look back, oh, that was such a sweet, that was a little bit syrupy, that wasn't real. And I said, no, <laughs> nothing you see on television is real. That's and right. Not even the reality shows, unless you're doing a documentary. That's yeah, I mean, what, what is supposed to be real? What's, you know, you're watching a created thing. Exactly. You- exactly. The, the director and the writer have an image and a style and a mood that they want to create and have. And it is there in... I was going to say it's their reality, but it's their vision. It's what they are doing and how they're going to bring all those elements together to make something beautiful and wonderful, memorable and inspirational. That's what I have to say. You want to know what I'm doing now? Yo, please. Yes. Well, I'm still busy. I am packing today. So uh, I'm going to Chicago tomorrow and I'm going to star in a movie called The Empty Church. And it's really, I've worked for this director filmmaker before, John Norton, and this is an especially heartfelt movie that he had created, I think, out of his grief because he lost his son. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of a pay-on, I think, to his son. So I'm doing The Empty Church in Chicago, and then I am finishing up a book called Romancing with the Stars that I'm writing with a co-author. And that is about how couples met and the romance and then where they met. And so it's a travel log kind of romancing with the stars, dancing with the stars type of thing. I have two movies that are out that came out uh, a couple months ago. One is called Yellow Bird. And uh-huh. it's one like 
all these lovely awards, like five at uh, film festivals, best film, three best films from different festivals. And it premiered in Northern California and in L.A. and is now on Amazon. Go to Amazon and type in Yellow Bird and there it is. Right after that one premiered, my other one premiered, which is called Old Man Jackson, and that just premiered, so he's now deciding where he's going to stream it. And I'm winning a Silver Spur Award on November the 10th from the Real Cowboy Organizations. I'm a cowgirl at heart. It used to be the Golden Boot, and now it's the Silver Spur. And I am arranging to do Agatha Christie readings. I have a friend in Wisconsin, and, and we're going to do all these staged readings, which I like. For Christmas, I'm doing staged readings of Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory. We're going to do the first one, November 30th, in Palm Springs, and that's also a benefit for Down Syndrome Film Festival, which will be in Palm Springs. And then I'm going to do one December 6th at the Hollywood Heritage Museum with the meet and greet and cider and cookies and wine and cheese. And then I'm doing one at the Burbank Historical Society, not because I'm a relic, as in Rudolph's infamous words that I like to quote. They said, oh, you're a relic? She says, no, I'm a collectible. So <laughs> That's how I collect- love that. <laughs> Isn't that great? And so all my books, the Family Affair Cookbook, Surviving Sissy, Ex-Child Stars, uh, holiday recipes for a family affair, the family affair scrapbook. Those are all available on Amazon. They're all available on my website, kathygarver.com. That's where also I have photos and my stepson makes candles. I have a newsletter out each month. You know, where you're going to be next is all on there. Yes, it's all on my newsletter and on my website also. Mrs. Beasley is an icon, and now there is a new ornament out for Mrs. Beasley, this cute little two-inch ornament that talks and uh, looks exactly like Mrs. Beasley, and it's so sweet. My so, sister had a Mrs. Beasley. Yep. Oh, did she really? Oh, did you yes. want to play with it? <laughs> did, you play, did she let you play with it? <laughs> I was um, the kind of person who kept the toys in their original boxes. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. That makes them collectible. I was at this one Comic-Con, and as you know, I played the voice of Firestar and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Mm -hmm. So Disney bought Marvel, and so bought Spider-Man, and they're making, and Hasbro and Marvel are making all kinds of little action figures and statues of Firestar. So I took one, and I had the little one with me, and a fan was just, oh, will you sign that? Yes, I'll I'll sign that for you, et cetera. She had her boyfriend with her, and the girl whispered something and says, well, excuse me, do you have another one that has just that little kind of um, fold at the end? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, how well I know. <laughs> yes, since you were collectible and wanted to keep it in the boxes, I see exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're just a, a whirlwind, just going and doing. And that's what we, having a purpose, having an, the next goal, having things to do, that's what all of us should find ways to do. You know, just keep moving on, moving forward, and also just loving the great years that you had and cherishing them, which you do. You don't go like, oh, don't call me sissy, 
or ah, that show, I've, I'm over it. I don't want to answer another question. You cherish it, you know, and that's also very heartening the fans. Well, thank you. And I love it. I, it was a wonderful show. I must say in my, <laughs> do I have to say this, 70 years or whatever of show business, I have never done anything that I have not been proud to show my family or my kids or grandkids if that ever happens. But I'm very proud of all my work and it's primarily PG and, oh, well, you know, it's just you, you're not relatable. But no, I didn't choose that to say, well, I'm only going to do PG. No, it just happened. And I think you get back what you put out. You mentioned Palm Springs, and I know that you have a star on the Palm Springs Walk of Fame, and you share that distinction with another Hanna-Barbera person, the legendary writer Charles Shows. He was the writer for Rough and Ready and Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear, and he wrote all the Hanna-Barbera in-house records. He was a very prolific writer. Yes, and I should know that better. And a lot of times, you know, the actors don't really see the, the writers. They get these wonderful scripts. There was a dictum, I think, oh, maybe 20 years ago now, that the writers could come onto the set, which they never had before, to make sure that the actors weren't messing up their lines, that they mm-hmm. worked so hard. They would have... <laughs> Brian Keith on Family Affair kind of made the dialogue his own. Like something he would just put in his own words. And they actually never said anything to Brian about that, but he became kind of his own writer. Yeah, I don't think I would have told him to say it (laughs) somehow. Right. (laughs) That sounds good, Brian. Yeah, keep that. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about an icon. He was in so many great movies. And yet, one of the ones he's probably most famous for is Parent Trap, which is very much in the Disney style that Family Affair is. Well, yes, and I think that that is the movie that made everybody see he wasn't just Macho Man with the Mountain Men and Charlton Heston and some of these other movies that he did, that he had this really warm, funny side to himself. And Brian absolutely adored children. That was his like number one thing. He loved kids, very much his own man, but he loved kids and was very sensitive. You've shared so much in a short time, and I I so appreciate not only all of the stories that you told and things I didn't know. A friend of mine, Jerry Beck, always says, you know, when they remake things and or or they say one thing is relevant and one thing isn't, he says, don't worry about it. The good stuff will last. It will outlast. It will endure. If it's good, people will find it. New generations will. I think that's true about what you've done. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking with you, Greg. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show. And I thank everybody out there for listening. Please, if you have two, three minutes, write a nice little review if you enjoyed the show. And click subscribe and click like and all those nice clicks that you can do. I really appreciate you tuning in and hope you'll join us next time. This is Greg Airbar saying bye-bye for now. We hope you enjoyed the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara with Greg Airborne. Please join us again and many thanks for listening. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.